You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. I am uh, all alone in the studio. Aaron Lammer is on vacation. Evan Ratliff on vacation. And uh, the show is also uh, on vacation of sorts this week. We are rerunning a conversation that I had back in September of 2017 with the writer Rachel Kadzi-Gansa. Rachel had just published uh, a story in GQ magazine called A Most American Terrorist, The Making of Dylan Roof. It's a story about the perpetrator of the uh, Charleston church shooting. And Rachel's story was one of those uh, was one of those pieces. For, for a couple of days there, it felt like it was the only thing that the world was talking about. And uh, it was certainly the most powerful piece that I read in 2017. It was uh, at the top of our Best of 2017 list that came out a few months later. A few months after that, it won the National Magazine Award for feature writing. And uh, a few months after that, it won the Pulitzer. The other thing that's worth knowing about this conversation, the other piece of context that you should have is um, after the story was published and was generating all this conversation, Rachel was inundated with interview requests and she felt really strongly that the story spoke for itself. But after a couple of days, decided that she had a few things to say. And um, I just feel so fortunate that we were the place where she decided to say them. Uh, I can't think of another conversation on the show that has stuck with me more. So that's what we're doing this week. Uh, my conversation with Rachel Kadzigansa from September 2017. At that time, I had just come back from the Decatur Book Festival with Evan Ratliff. We had a great time curating the Read This Summer list of authors. And uh, this summer, Shea Serrano of The Ringer is bringing a bunch of writers to the Decatur Book Festival. You can read along with them at readthissummer.com. All kinds of incredible authors. Mary H.K. Choi, Jonathan Abrams, uh, really fantastic, fantastic choices. So if you are listening to this on vacation somewhere and you're looking for a book to read, go check out readthissummer.com. You cannot go wrong. Okay, here's Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Hey. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I want to talk about this story, and I think we should just start at the start. Okay. Where were you when you heard about these murders? Wow. I don't know where I was physically. I know when I heard about these murders in this season of death, right, that we're in in America, 
these murders devastated me because in the last five years, you know, I've lost my grandfather and my grandmother and a lot of older black people in my life. And the fact that so many of the victims were older black people really made me livid. Just high register disgust. And it was around then that I started to think about this story, I think. And then, you know, the summer before the trial started, I went to Charleston on my own. And I started to do the groundwork of the reporting. So by the time I went to GQ, I had already reported what I thought would be the story, which would be of the victims. So you went on spec to Charleston? Like you were Mm -hmm. so moved by this that you took yourself there? Mm -hmm. Pay for it all out of pocket. Help me understand why you didn't go to one of your editors at the Times Magazine or somewhere else and say, I'm interested in this. You want to send me down there? Well, I like the autonomy. That's my favorite word. I like the autonomy of figuring out the story for myself before I go to someone. And then, you know, maybe they start to conceive of it the way they want to. It was very important for me to conceive of it the way I thought it should be told from my work and from what I saw. I also had to see what the story was, right? Because at first, the reporting out of Charleston is an amazing story of forgiveness. And 48 hours after all of their family was just murdered, they all have forgiven Dylan Roof. That was not true. That was a complete erasure of black grief. That was a complete erasure of these people's humanity. You don't ask someone 48 hours after, you know, they've had this unexpected massacre happen at their church, how they're doing emotionally. And so... I thought something was wrong. I thought that the story wasn't getting told right, but I wasn't sure. And so I had to first see in real time what it was. And that's what I did that first summer in Charleston. Why do you think people got that story wrong? I think people get black people wrong. You know, what happens to black pain is really the question in America, right? It's like, where do we contain all of this suffering? And how do people deal with the emotionality and the strength of what has happened to black people in America? And I think one way that they deal with it is to dismiss it. And there was an utter dismissal that these people had experienced something that was so heinous. There's a sense that black flesh doesn't have deep wounds, as if this is all it's meant to do in America, which is contain and endure and and be a site of pain that stoically marches on, right? And so I knew that something was wrong, but I had to be sure. And it's true. Some of the family members did forgive Dylan Roofer, you know, in the next three days after the shooting. But many of them did not. And that was not uh, that was not a story that people wanted to tell because the media, whatever people wanted it to be, okay. I don't like to use the the whole media thing because I think it's really dangerous. You know, T- Taylor Swift is using the media. Trump uses the media. You know, it, it's like a very Weimar Republic thing of like the media, the lying press. I don't like that, but I do think that it's not a media question. It's a societal issue of. I think it's a societal issue of reparations. How do you say sorry for continuous wrongs to a people? And Dylan Roof pushed to the forefront what happens to us here. And I don't think people know what to do with that. It's not just hysteria. It's not just Black people feeling unduly punished. It's not right. So you you felt like that story was off, but you wanted to go make sure for yourself. How do you do that? I started to set up interviews. So I set up interviews with Anthony Thompson, whose wife was uh, Mira Thompson, who was murdered at the church. An amazing gracious, kind, wonderful man. He sat with me for, I think, about two hours and we talked. And his grief was so radiant and it was just so... I mean, they they had had like a second marriage. They fell madly in love. He adored her. And that is when I started to viscerally understand what these people had been through. 
And then that night I interviewed the guy who beat Dylan Roof up. And I talked to him, I think, for three hours. So I started to piece together this story. And I started to get a feeling for Charleston as a southern city. And that was when I said, okay, this is a story I'm going to write. And so that's when I took the pitch to GQ. And at that point, did you think the story was going to be about the victims? Yeah. The story was going to be about the victims until the trial ended. There was no sense that I was going to write about Dylan Roof. But here's what Dylan Roof did that (laughs) made... You know, that was when I said, okay, I'm I'm going to come and like shadow box with this dead man walking because there was a moment during victim impact. Victim impact is a part of the trial. A part of the trial after he's been sentenced. These people are seared into, transdermally seared into my, my heart. I mean, this was the most painful thing I think I've ever seen. And my pain is nothing compared to what they went through. And when they were up there crying, wailing, asking him to tell them why he had killed their loved ones. And he would not even look at them. It took everything in me to not jump over those benches. And it made me so angry, Max. Like, it just was infuriating. And I thought to myself, what is he going to do now? So then he had a chance to say, you know, his thoughts on everything. And he said, you don't know me. If you think that I'm hatred, you don't know what hatred is. The absolute arrogance of this guy was infuriating. And I said, oh, we don't know you. And you were allowed to sit behind the sanctity of silence. Then I'm going to figure you out. You know, one of the things that Dylan was very, very committed to was keeping his psychopathological information out of the courtroom and his parents' information out of the courtroom, his family's information out of the courtroom. And so that veil that he was allowed to drop down on his life was something that the victims were never afforded. And that was when I said, no, you don't deserve to be removed from this process, this vulnerable process of having your life outed and interrogated, investigated. What we need to do with these white supremacists is find out where they live, find out who they are and where they came from. And then that's when I decided to go to Columbia. It was after the trial. Before that, I had, I think I had maybe 5,000 words on the, the victim story. What was that victim story going to be? The victim story was going to be, you know, a long form story of how these people were dealing with this egregious act. So I had done all of these interviews. And this was a weird moment, right? Because what you start to imagine is these people didn't ask for this. They didn't ask to have to talk about the worst moment in their life. And it's kind of wrong to ask them to. How do you do that? How do you talk to someone about the worst moment in their life? In that instance, I decided after doing a few of them, you don't. I thought it wasn't right. I thought that they had done so much talking. I mean, if it was an untold story, sure. But they had been reported on the New York Times and Time Magazine. They had done so much talking and they had given so much to us. In terms of their story, it just felt gluttonous, you know, like it felt ravenous for more and more and more from these people rather than saying, you've given enough, I got it from here. You know, like, let me do some work instead of depending on you to rehash this horrible moment over and over and over again. And I think that is something that comes out, you know, when I do these write-arounds, it's often because I think Black people saying no, Black people saying I can't do this, Black people in pain, people don't back off. And so humanizing people enough to say, you don't need to talk anymore. Did you become close with them? No, I didn't become close with them. You know, what was really interesting was that I was one of the, I think I was the only black female writer down there. And when I use black, I mean black American. And so it was interesting when I would go to the courtroom initially, everyone assumed I was with the victims. And so they would often talk to me or 
engage with me in a way that was open and I would have to be like, no, 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 I'm a writer, you know? Now, Mr. Sanders and I, we would talk, you know, he was smoking at the time and I was smoking out of stress at the time. I don't really smoke. And we would sit outside and we would talk and uh, he said, you look like family. And I would say, well, you look like my grandfather. I mean, I'm serious. This man looks so much like my family. And we would talk and he said, I remember what he said one time. It was so funny. The first time we talked, he said, I know you. And I said, no, 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 you don't know me. He said, "Mm, I know you. And he said, well, then, you know, I had to have, we probably met on that boat. And I said, what boat? And he said, the boat coming from Africa. And these people, what also I think a lot of people didn't know about those families is that a lot of them are like Geechee Gullah, right? So this sort of historic black community that's in Georgia and South Carolina that hold very tight to a lot of indigenous African practices and culture and, and this sense that they're close to the motherland. And the fact that he thought that it was possible that somehow we were connected on this boat from 300 years ago was sort of unbelievable to me, you know, not outside of the realm of possibility. So I didn't get close to them. But what I would say is that in that moment and in other moments, the ability to talk to them as black people was different. And it made it different. It made me feel an obligation to them to do something. And I don't know if this is what they would have wanted me to do, but this is what I could think to do and what I could do in terms of my skill set. Help me understand that a little bit more. Like, in your mind, in your words, what'd you do? I felt like I want Dylan Roof to know that if you walk in a church and you kill Black people, someone will come to your parents' door and ask them to be responsible for your behavior and ask them, what did you do to raise a child with this little sensitivity and this much rage? I want these guys to know that they will be implicated and indicted, and they won't have the right to control the narrative. Hey, I'm going to put Rachel on hold for just a second and uh, tell you about a podcast that I think if you are listening to the Longform Podcast, which you are because this is the Longform Podcast, you will like this other podcast I want to tell you about. It is called You can't make this up. It's a new podcast from Netflix, and it's all about the true stories that sound too crazy to be real. Each episode features conversations between podcasters. Uh, Lindsay Weber from Who Weekly did one. Kelly McEvers from Embedded, who's also been on Longform. She did one of the interviews. Uh, I did one of the interviews with uh, the director of Icarus which is a documentary about the Russian doping scandal, which won an Oscar. Anyway, every episode is a podcaster talking to someone with uh, insider behind-the-scenes knowledge of one of those amazing Netflix documentaries. Wild Wild Country is one episode, Evil Genius. Uh, they are going to be ones on Last Chance You, The Mouthwateringly Good Chef's Table, Icarus, as I mentioned, all kinds of incredible binge-worthy stuff that you have no doubt watched. And if you haven't, Go watch them and then listen to the show. It's called You Can't Make This Up. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast destination. Go listen to it. Subscribe, review, do all that good stuff. The show is called You Can't Make This Up. Now let's get back to Rachel. Tell me about doing that. Tell me about going to knock on his father's door. That was a terrible idea in retrospect. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought about it last night and I, I finally I, I said at the remove of <laughs> being safe in my home in Brooklyn, I was like, what were you thinking? Right. And the reason that now I'm like, that was a terrible idea was that there was all of this sealed stuff that because Dylan was representing himself, he was allowed to strike from entering the court record publicly. 
until it was unsealed. So in that moment, there was so much we didn't know about him, right? We didn't know his psychological makeup. We didn't know much of his background. He didn't testify. He didn't allow evidence to be entered. We didn't know that Dylan Roof was threatening his Jewish lawyer to stab him with a pencil if he entered any psychological information, okay? I saw the way that the 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 guys who were watching Dylan were watching him really hard, but I just thought they were looking at him because he's like, a, you know, like, he's a murderer. He's a mass murderer. But, you know, we didn't know this stuff. When I went to knock on Dylan Roof's dad's door... I felt literally like I was just doing my job. Now, I think it was a a couple of weeks ago when we were fact-checking the piece. I finally was reading unsealed documents again, and I found that, you know, this is the guy who allegedly believed that, like, a race war is coming, the dad. This is the guy who has, like, a cachet of guns. This is a guy who had Dylan singing inward songs and dancing around, mocking black people. So if I had He's the guy who bought him the gun. And he's the guy who bought him the gun or who gave him the money to buy the gun. Now, there's a sort of like magical thinking, right, that I engaged in, I guess, to go knock on that door of that you're in the South, not necessarily the Deep South, but psychologically the Deep South. And I engaged in magical thinking in the sense that I thought, well, let me give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe this just happened, right? Because this is just the beginning of the, the reporting process for me. And, um, that was like one of your first stops. Yeah, that was the first stop, right. So it was like, well, let me figure out these people. I, I, he had never come to court. Uh, you know, there were no Confederate flags outside the house. There was nothing. It looked like Margaritaville. Like, it was kind of like low rent, but it was like, hey, you know, whatever. When I went, you know, I didn't see the giant Rottweilers. I had looked through the door. I think three times I walked up to the door and walked back out to that lot. And I was just steadying myself to knock. When I knocked and the two Rottweilers came, I was like, you know, oh, my God, what have I done? When he let me in and the Rottweilers are just like, you know, 100-pound Rottweilers are around you. And my heart was like, and that was when I was like, I need a beer only to be able to articulate or calm down or do something with my hands because I'm really in Dylan Roof's house right now. But even then, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I just thought, I'm in a guy's house whose son did something heinous. I think it was in the last few weeks when I read the unsealed reports that I realize, and I, I say this warily, but, you know, I, I feel like I finally got the sense of danger. You know, like that was not a great idea. But you didn't feel that danger when you were there. I d- felt afraid. But, you know, knowing now what I know, I would not have done that. I would not have gone into his house at, at night. I went on his property and knocked on his door. You know, he could easily say, as we've seen over the last few years, I felt threatened, Right. There's a girl in Detroit who did that, who was shot. You know, she knocked on someone's door for help and he opened the door and shot her. So I, I, I think I didn't think through the decision rationally. What I thought at the time was, I can't write the story unless I get a sense of where this kid came from. And I, I have to do certain things that maybe aren't smart. And I also remember thinking that I was really, really tired of hearing so much about black people being shot with their backs turned. And I remember thinking I, I wanted these people to know there are people who do love black people enough to stand up and say, what you guys are doing is wrong, and I'm going to come to your door. It did seem like again and again in the piece, like those moments yeah. before you knock on someone's door, standing outside someone's house, seemed they seemed almost like you were having like an out-of-body experience in those moments. Like... Uh, like you were watching yourself do it. Yeah, I mean, I remember I called Daniel Riley, the editor at GQ, 
after, and it was late at night when I went there, and I just said, I want you to know I'm going there. I called my husband. My husband and I had a code word. You know, I texted him the address. I was like, here's where I am. I also, it was funny, but I got an Uber to the neighborhood, right? And so when I told my Uber guy, it was a black guy, where I was going, he was like, you know what? I used to work for Sears, and I dropped off a washing machine at that house. He's like, I think he has some dogs. Now, he did not remember that he had two giant Rottweilers, <laughs> but he knew he had some dogs. So I was like, okay, I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. But what he told me was that I'm going to stay in this neighborhood. I never saw him again, but I always think of how amazing black people are because it's like, he didn't know me from anyone, but he's like, I know what you're doing. And I know that that's some crazy shit. So I'm going <laughs> to stay in this neighborhood for you, girl. And I was like, that's love, you know? So I, I don't I don't think it's like anything that you do like this is like individualistic. It's like, it's communal. And it's like, if you approach it with good intentions and the intentions were, I wanted these people to have some answers, I think, you know? When Marsha Spencer screamed that in the victim's testimony of just, who are you and where did you come from? I said, well, if Dylan's not going to answer that, then someone should. When did you feel like you uh, were starting to understand him? His grandfather made a comment to me in the court when I said, I'm sorry to meet you under these circumstances. And he said, it is what it is. And that's when I started to think, oh, this is endemic. These people don't get it. This is larger than him. This is a place. This is a state. This is so many people. So when I started to spend more time in Colombia and talk to these people and get a sense of the state, that was when I started to understand Dylan more. You only stayed at his dad's house for a little while. Uh, two minutes. What was it like? I guess not even to talk to his dad, but to talk to those kids he lived with, to talk to... The trailer the... park was interesting. I mean, I went there at night. I don't think that that's also smart because at night people are relaxed. Maybe they're drinking, they're doing whatever, you know. But you do get a more open person. So when I went to the trailer park, the, the families have all moved away from there. But I met two women, and this was cut out, who were living in the trailer, and they let me go in the trailer. And they were, they were white women. The South is interesting, though, you know, because for every person that you'd make a judgment on, they'll surprise you, you know? They wanted to show me the trailer. When I told them, you know, this is where Dylan Roof lives, she said, I got goose chills all up my back, girl. And it was a weird thing of, uh, you know, where he was in Lexington is Klan country. You know, when I told other black people that I'd been out there in Red Bank at night, they were like, you you lost your mind. That is known Klan territory. Lauren Collins of The New Yorker wrote a big piece about the barbecue place that's owned by Maurice Bessinger. That's, you know, he has Confederate flags everywhere, was supporting these pamphlets that talked about divine slavery. There's another guy who went on Jerry Springer in the 90s who would talk about making you know, lamps out of Jewish people's skin and told Jerry Springer, I'll make a lamp out of your skin. They all live in this area that Dylan was hanging out in. In the trailer Dylan lived in, there was a black guy hanging out with him two days before the shooting. So there's this sort of manic sense about race in the South that makes no sense to me of that Dylan was surrounded by black people. I mean, you look at the picture of him as a little kid, the class is predominantly black. The guy had 88 friends and three-fourths of them are black kids. You know, one of the first people to say, I still love Dylan, was the black kid hanging out hanging out with him in the trailer. So I don't understand everything about that place. I know it doesn't completely make sense to me, but those women were very open about, come in, see where he lives, see how we're living. And that was revelatory. After doing this story, what, uh, what does make sense to you? Mm, I think until America grapples with the legacy of chattel slavery, we're going to be in a bad place. 
I don't know how America's going to grapple with the legacy of chattel slavery, but I know that in some way it's going to have to. I think that it's all tied into the diminishing investment in education that we have here, right? Like you literally have people who can't speak to American history and yet are. For me, it was really a moment, you know, I spent so much time in archives down there to interrogate that legacy, the plantation legacy, the legacy of people not being able to deal with the sins of this country. I mean, Faulkner was such a huge influence for me in this. I mean, the first line is is literally from Light in August, right? I think Light in August is sitting beside the hill, she thinks. And the first line in this is sitting beside the church, he thought. Light in August to me is a perfect book because it does discuss, right, we don't have a clear understanding of how race works in, in America. But I think that that's that issue of that white people who see how bad this country has been to certain people, they're going to be very germane to making things right if they can be made right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about process? Yeah. How long were you there for? So I spent, I think, like a week and a half and maybe I spent two weeks that summer before. And this is where Daniel Riley was very, very helpful. There are a couple of people who were so helpful. Daniel was helpful because every time I kept calling him and saying, I need to stay longer, he was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and at first it was like, well, you attended the whole trial and you don't think that that, that was it? And I was like, that ain't it. So it was weird because he was totally, he wasn't down with it, but he was supportive of my sense that I needed to go to Columbia. What do you mean he wasn't down with it? Well, it's a lot of money. Like, you know, everyone has a bottom line and they were pouring money into it. It's like, it's a lot of money. It's like a fiduciary concern. Does that like put pressure on you? Did you feel that? Did you feel pressured to deliver something? Do you know that you would? What? How's that? I mean, I I feel pressure my whole life. You know, I always want to do the best I can do. I always want to, everything I write, I want it to be the best thing that I can write. That doesn't always happen, but no one's going to motivate or put pressure on me more than I am on myself, you know? The pressure for me was the victims. That's the pressure. No, I'm not thinking about Condé Nast's money. But I I was thinking about definitely this guy killed nine black people. And people aren't getting the story right yet. In my mind, they weren't. So how long does it take to uh, to get that story right? It took a while because at first, you know, I started the other way, right? So I started with the victims and then it was like, no, 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 this is not the right way. This is not it. And then it was about Charleston and I thought, why am I writing about Charleston? He's not even from Charleston. Like, what is Charleston going to tell me about him? It seemed bizarre to me that so many people just hung out in Charleston. Like, Charleston has, you know, Charleston's the site of where he drove to. But Charleston seemed like an aside. So when I came home, I took a couple of weeks to just be normal. I got bed bugs somewhere along the way. And so when my husband picked me up from the airport, it was like an immediate dump of all my clothes into plastic bags and like just like oh you got bed you got bed bugs in South Carolina yeah I got bed bugs in South Carolina it was the, you know South Carolina was the worst man like all sorts of terrible things happened to me there but you know what Wait, I kept what else having, happened to you I mean I went to Dylan Roof's uncle the one who was like you know I want him to ride the lightning and I was like oh well maybe this will be like a interesting sort of Gonzo character that I'll meet along the way drove out to this very unincorporated part again going deeper into Red Bank and I was like whoa it's looking tough out here I mean it was looking like some Harmony Corinne stuff and I was like you know whatever like you know one of the things that I want to say is like I grew up for a little bit in western Pennsylvania so I definitely went to school with coal miners and things like coal miner kids you know so it's like White, lower-income poverty is not unfamiliar to me. Like, I remember being called the N-word when I was, like, five, you know? So it's not like, oh, my God, how did they live like this? But when I got there and I was like, whoa, this is, like, this is crazy. Like, 
these trailers. This is so crazy. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the door anyway. So I knock on the nicest trailer and I'm like, no one lives in this nicer one. And then there's one that's like crazy rundown. And I knock on the door and at first he's pretty nice. And I was like, this guy is in bad shape. Okay, he had holes all in his thermal. He'd been through things. And I was stunned by the condition that he was in. And I remember then I lost my footing and I didn't know what to say. Like it threw me off seeing someone look so disheveled. And then I asked the stupidest question. I was like, hi, I wanted to talk to you about the verdict, your nephew. And let me tell you why that's a bad question. <laughs> or, or you know already, right? Because it's like his nephew was a sentence to die, you know? And then like, it's like, that's a crazy way to get someone to... And he was like, you know what? I'm giving you three seconds to get off my property right now. And he was like deathly serious. And I remember running like out of there. And I remember shouting, I'm sorry. And he's like, I'm about to make you sorry. And I I was so, that was the scary thing. I, that was scarier than anything. That was bad. The bed bugs were bad. <laughs> so much was bad. I don't think I'm welcome in the state of South Carolina I'm, I'm probably sorry, anymore. Laugh, those, those feel like uh, <laughs> like slightly, slightly different. Slightly different. Slightly different. Categories. I mean, it was always like you know getting a, yelled at by those weird women at the restaurant. You know, I, that was Martin Luther King Day, I believe. Anyway, in three months, it, it felt like every week something bad was happening. But the thing I had to keep thinking was was looking over at those people who had lost the people they loved the most in the world and the grace they had and the composure they had and the strength they had. And it was, it, it minimizes everything. It's like, all right, so these sort of crazy things happened. This is your job. Like, get over it. So it was three months? Yeah, it was like two and a half, three months. That's like an amount of time where you kind of forget what your like normal life is like. Like you're really living somewhere if you're there for two and a half or three months. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was kind of. I I know South Carolina. Were you by yourself most of the time? Yeah, I was always by myself. I like being by myself. So you're there for three months and you're by yourself. And how how do you know? Uh, how do you know when it's time to go? Well, with something like this, you know, I I write a lot and I think about scenes. So you know, the the piece is sort of partitioned off into flight, church, trailer, the kids, the strangeness. And that's the way I was thinking about it. So whenever things were happening, I would say, okay, this is a scene. This is a scene. And the way I think about scenes is that the scenes create the sort of artifice of structure and the story. And so when you have the scenes, the scenes should give the reader a sense of what you're taking in that composes your worldview of, of this person, this place, this story. And when you have enough scenes that can do that work and do that lifting and sort of bring flesh to all of that architecture, then you kind of know you're done. It's like making a body, I would imagine, right? You know, you know, you have your kidney, you know, you have your liver, you know, you have your heart, you know, you have this. I remember, I, you know, when I was, I record everything, I record any conversation I have. If I'm talking to a waiter, I'm recording it. If I'm talking, walking yesterday, I'm recording it. And I remember thinking when I would title some things, I, I remember there was one point I titled one thing, you have it. And that was sort of when it was like, okay. What was that? It was the conversation with um, his friend, Caleb conversation with his principal you know I think it was maybe my third time in Columbia where I started to think you, you got it like you you know this kid what happened in those conversations how do you know you have it I could tell because I've taught special education 
and I have a learning disability, that Dylan Roof was probably high IQ. You could tell by the way he wrote, you know, what he wrote in court. But high IQ is overrated, man. Like, it really doesn't mean anything. You can be high IQ, and if you don't have compassion and emotional intelligence and heart, it's like you are you can be Dylan Roof, right? So when I was thinking about those interviews, what they did was sort of say, this was a kid who couldn't make sense of things well. And then you start to think, oh, this is why these guys find this sort of laggard explanation of like, yeah, it's the Mexicans keeping us down, you know? And it's like, dude, you dropped out of school in ninth grade, you know? So there's this complete lack of personal responsibility. You're like, you're worried about black people and Mexican people and all these people because you don't take personal responsibility for yourself. My great-grandmother went to college. She went to college one generation out of chattel slavery, okay? Dylan Roof and his dad did not go to school. They did not do their work. They're not invested in this country. Their only sense of belonging, the only right they should have to feel the way they do is because they believe their whiteness means something. And so once I started to understand, like, maybe why, you know, white supremacy is attractive to these people and, and the situations they're in, Dylan Roof made sense to me. So that's when you knew? That's when I totally knew. <laughs> that's when I was like, I can go up to any white supremacist house and knock on this door because you know what? You guys are dumb. You know, like you're ignorant. And I don't care if you've gone to college. It's like you don't understand anything. And I can't take you seriously. I want to ask you about something else quickly. Yeah. And this is maybe like a little bit of like a meta or weird question. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, like you keep coming back to this mission that you were on for those families and this what feels like just true passion to do this story for them. And history comes up in all of your work. Like I feel like almost everything I've ever read of yours, like it's put in the context of so much that came before it. Mm -hmm. When you're going in and doing this research about Columbia, how much are you learning and how much are you confirming that passion in what you already think? That's a really good question. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. like how much of it are you reading and you're like, I knew it. <laughs> and how much of it are you like, oh, shit, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way. Like, how much does this history confirm the way that you look at the world? And how much does this history change or alter or structure the way you look at the world? All right. So here's the thing with the, the sort of roof family history. I really wanted to believe that they were, I think, better than they were. What do you mean better? Had moral compasses. I was talking to Gideon Lewis Krauss, the writer. And and my other friend, Taib Smith, and, and there are two friends who point out to me, like, you're fundamentally naive in a lot of ways about human nature, which I am, I think, because I kind of, in some way, I would like to believe people are better than they are. And so when I went to Bennett Roof's house, I did not think that he was a guy who believed in what people have reported is a race war and was, you know, I wanted to believe that the old grandfather who said it is what it is was this elderly or something, right? But then you read that he said, you know, Dylan's not all bad, da 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 da, da. And it's like, or, or I found this week that Dylan's sister, Morgan Roof, has a Tumblr where she's like, ask me anything about my brother. You know, he was always good to me. And of late, I, I really, I really, 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 really think to me, this is just me speaking as a person. I don't know what happened to those people. And I don't think that they can look with such incredulousness as to what happened to Dylan or what Dylan did personally. I don't. So the human nature stuff surprises me always. The history stuff does not. 
because I've read so much. Like, that's what I do in my free time. You know, like, I just, I read a lot of American history. You know, connecting their family tree, there was not, it wasn't like I went and found their family tree and it was there for me. I, I went back through newspapers and said, okay, so this roof had this son. Where else does he appear here? Oh, he appears, he had a Boy Scout party that's reported in the state. Oh, so who was his dad there? And so then that's how I start to go back and figure that out. And then you go all the way back. That stuff was surprising to find, you know, enslaved people in their their records. I didn't expect to find that necessarily. But the large historical sort of arcs, those moments, no, that's why he's the most American terrorist, right? Because this is the this is America. His story is it's indicative of what's happened here. That moment where you where you you found in those records that his family owned a slave. A I say enslaved person. Enslaved person. Because there's no such thing as a slave. You put people in slavery. That his family owned an enslaved person, yeah. a little girl. What was that moment like for you? What What did that say to you? I really, 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 really don't like these people. <laughs> I mean, that's why I say I'm not a journalist. It's like I don't even feign for objectivity. You know, I, I mean, I, I went into it with goodwill towards them, but it, it suddenly became like, man, an eight-year-old girl. What do you do with an eight-year-old child? Like, what? You went somewhere and you purchased or you had or you felt comfortable owning your own child like what were you what are you doing it's distasteful right it's like horrible completely but it's also this kid who was so obsessed with purity, purity and lineage and, and, i mean it's it's like um it's just so stark well you know what i have this theory about someone wrote to me recently a friend and was like a black friend i got my dna done but i don't want to talk about it my dad is half African. My mom is black American. And I said, why? And she said, I'm embarrassed. And I've had a lot of friends tell me how black Americans, how embarrassed they are when they get their DNA. And you watch those ads on TV, like, I got my ancestry done. And I found out I'm like all Native American because everyone wants to find that out. Right. <laughs> but you've never heard a white person say, I got my ancestry done and I popped up 75 percent sub, you know, sub-Saharan African. You always hear black people talking about, oh, my God, I'm 17 percent Irish. I'm 25% Norwegian. I have never, ever, ever in my life, and I'm writing about this, heard a white person talk about their black ancestry. And it isn't a one-way street. It, it doesn't work that way, okay? <laughs> no. So America has a real amnesia about what went on and the sexual nature, the sexual, you know, components of chattel slavery. No one wants to talk about that. And so Dylan Roof's obsession with purity Coupled with the fact that his best friend was mixed race and is very cool and super handsome and all these other things, it all leads to this sense that this stuff was driving this kid crazy. I mean, you talk about the South and you're talking about a place that's still making money, not off their civil rights history. They're making money off the culture that black Americans have produced in this country. Okay, the plantation culture, the musical culture, all of these things. You walk around Charleston, the things they sell to tourists are seagrass baskets made by Gullah women, right? This is their sort of claim to fame, this sort of black culture. But no one wants to talk about how much blackness is the lingua franca of American culture. And they don't want to talk about that. They just want to imagine they're eating, you know, shrimp and grits and okra and all these things that are African food. My dad's West African, the same stuff my mother cooks in Louisiana, the same stuff they cook in Charleston is the stuff my dad cooks. That did not come from Europe, you know? And it's it's this sort of erasure of how much there was a conversation between the cultures, right? A forced conversation through ownership, through bondage. And Dylan just got that all wrong. I mean, he just, he, I don't think people can even deal with it. 
you know, what was weird when I talked to his mom is how much she sounded like my black grandmother. It was bizarre. They had like the exact same accent, the exact same voice, the way they said, oh, honey, yeah, okay, oh. I'm like, wow, the South is really, 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 really bizarre. <laughs> Let's talk about the uh, the present moment for a second. Yeah. If we can, there's a turn in the story, which I would like to make also in our conversation. Mm-hmm. You, we extrapolate out what you've learned about Dylan Roof uh, to the current president of the United States and to the neo-Nazi and white supremacist movement in this country. Your story came out, what, a week after Charlottesville? Completely coincidentally. Tell me about watching Charlottesville. Charlottesville does not surprise me in the least. You know, I follow all of these people on Instagram. So I've actually, you know, I'm really cagey about my Instagram in a weird way because I only have like 200 people on there. And I'm not on social media, really. So I follow a bunch of neo-Nazis on my Instagram, my personal Instagram. So my Instagram doesn't have anything that identifies my name. It doesn't have a picture of me. Because once you follow enough of them, they assume you're in that community. Like when I first started to do it, they wouldn't add me. So I went to the ones that are public and I added all of them. And then the ones that are private added me. Charlottesville did not surprise me because I look at these guys, their feeds, and it's really disturbing. Why do you follow all these people? I follow them because I need to know who they are and what they're doing and how it works. How could I write about it and not know? You're going to keep writing about it? I don't know if I'm going to keep writing about it, but in the moment, I mean, it couldn't be sort of like theoretical, right? Like, no, I, I know. I, I guess think I'm, there I guess are I'm white asking, supremacists out there and I know nothing about them. I guess I'm asking, why do you keep following? I guess because I'm in there now. What do you mean? I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm on all of these private feeds and all of these accounts. I'm not going to like throw that away. It was like a lot of work to get to trick them into adding me. I mean, I had a cultural studies professor who told me, you don't read the New York Times to find out what someone who reads the New York Post is thinking. You read the New York Post. So if I want to understand what these people who love Trump or they, you know, they want to engage in this sort of rhetoric, I'm going to go to where they're, you know, they're talking about it. I guess kind of what I'm asking is, um, am I done with this? Yeah. Like, don't, don't, you <laughs> don't want, I want to don't be you done want to with just, this? Like, like fumigate those bedbug clothes and move on? <laughs> move on. No, you know, now it's not that disturbing in a way. It's like sometimes I'm scrolling and I'm like, oh, look, it's DJ Khaled's baby. Oh, look, it's a neo-Nazi meme. Yeah, that's what I'm about. Like, literally. And sometimes I'm shocked. I'm like, whoa, what's this? <laughs> like, like, what a, is this? Like an awful, no, like, I know, uh, it's an awful thing to do before you know, bed. You yeah, know? no, you know, no, no. The, I guess I've disassociated from the, the, the I sent my friend Rose an uh, image of, um, a kid like suited up, suited up in paramilitary gear, guns. She's like, this is so disturbing. Why are you sending me this? And I'm like, this is what they're doing. You know, they're stockpiling weapons. Uh, I don't know. I, I want to know about that. I report a lot of them, too. I mean, I spend a lot of time like if I, you know, I'm that that was a weird thing I started to do when I was writing this. So I'd be like, right, go on neo-Nazi accounts and be like, yeah. well, that's not surprising. I mean, you start... I mean, it was total immersion. It was, I mean, they're like, I was talking to someone else and they were like, are, are you okay after you wrote that? And I was like, oh, yeah, I think I'm okay. That was my, yeah, that was going to be my last question. <laughs> if I could ask you now. You all right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm, you know, look, it I, I, it just, it was like, I got to get the story done. Well, the thing I was going to say is like, I feel like on some level the story is uh, like f- forcing a bunch of other people to follow white supremacists 
on their Instagram for like 8,000 words or whatever it was. Like the story forces people to stare at Dylan Roof. Yeah, I mean, and and he's a real person. These guys are real. You know, they go to college. They're out there. I mean, it's not, this is not hyperbole. There's one woman I follow. She's a mother to three kids. And she says some crazy hateful stuff. And otherwise would completely blend in. You'd walk by her and be like, oh, nice Southern lady. Whatever. They're all over. I mean, one of the guys I write about, Jared Taylor, went to Yale. The best work about the stuff is was written by a black woman, professor at Vanderbilt University. Almost, I think, six years ago, her name is Carol Swain. But she says that, well, the typical white supremacists that people want to imagine versus the real white supremacists that kind of emerged out of the Obama years, they're not in clan gear, dude. They're not alienated. They're organized. They have communities. They have women. I mean, Harper's ran a whole piece about this. It's about being aware of, of I think, the way these people are communicating and, and coalition building. So you weren't surprised by Charlottesville? No, I was not surprised by Charlottesville because you can see that, you know, that these people are amassing. And it's tied to the fact that, right, there are no... Trump ran on, I'm going to reopen coal mines. Okay, fine. Which ones? And who are you going to get to work in them? What are you talking about? So how much longer are these people going to have their backs against the walls believing in these mythologies until they start to feel very angry? You look at the numbers of unskilled labor jobs. You look at the way that we're using more and more sort of like automated labor, robot labor, you know, artificial intelligence labor. You see the people who are falling behind. You see their inability to address their own personal responsibility and they're falling behind. And you see how angry they are. It seems to me like Charlottesville, you know, what do you expect? Our president thinks that there was evil on both sides. What do you expect will come next? I don't know. You know, I don't like to prognosticate. I think I do kind of like I have this sort of uncanny belief in goodness in a weird way. I do, 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 do think that these people are fighting with themselves, ultimately, in the sort of like a culture war of their own extinction. I don't know what the end game will look like, though. You know, I don't know if they're going to go out with a fight or with a sort of whimper. I don't think I'm not. That's not to say I think poor white people are going to go out. That's not the issue here. The issue is not that. The issue is the sort of people who are so angry. And feel the need to articulate their anger through violence and hate crimes and hate speech. That's the issue when I say that they're fighting their own endgame. I don't I don't know what's going to happen, you know. Is it something you're going to keep writing about? I don't know. You know, I do think there was a moment where I, this is the first white person I've ever written about. You know, my profiles before were very much based in sort of like writing love letters to people I admire. And this was a 180 because it was it's still a love letter. But it's a love letter to the nine victims, right? And the first 8,000 words before that love letter, it's sort of building evidence of why one person is so hateful, right? And that their love is sort of undiminishing. I was telling people that I think right now that the time calls for interrogating the construct of whiteness. And so I think the next couple of essays that I write about, I think there's one more person I want to write about. But I think the next few profiles I write about when I'm done the book will probably be about white America in that way, like a white album, literally. It's a good title. Yeah, the white (laughs) album. Yeah, I don't know where I thought of that one. (laughs) You said before that you're not a journalist. And uh, you said many times that you were doing this for a reason. Yeah. What was the reaction like from the families of the victims? There were a few people who have reached out to me. One woman reached out to me recently and said I was Cynthia Hurt's friend. 
thank you. Another person reached out to me and said she was named after the Graham family. And Malcolm Graham was the brother of Cynthia Hurd, who was a Graham. And she said, I'm not going to read this piece. And I said, I don't want you to read this piece. Because, I mean, the last, the second to last section is incredibly violent. And she said, though, thank you on behalf of my great aunt, my great uncle, all of us, and all of this family. And that, I think, was the day the piece came out, and I burst into tears. I just, I've actually spent the last two weeks crying so much. I spent a lot of that trial, like, I'm about to cry again. It's something that will stay with me forever in so many ways of what I saw those people go through. I don't think I had ever thought I would look at um, a dead black grandmother's body at 87 years old and think someone had stepped over her body and shot her 11 times. It makes me still so upset. So the response that I think that people had was one that scared me because I think it was a real risk to put Dylan's face up there and, and sort of say, I'm writing about this guy, right? Because you don't want to valorize. You don't want to add anything to this unmeaningful existence that is his. So that so many people understood, I guess, my project, which was, I guess, kind of to like, I, w- I remember just listening to a, like a lot of, I remember watching at 1.7 Seal because I remember feeling like, you're playing chess with like evil and you got to win because this is the most terrible thing I'd ever seen. And I was so mad. I still get so mad. And, and, and it's like words aren't enough. You know, I I still don't feel, I mean, this is just me being really honest and candid, but it's like, I'm angry about it. Right. Like it's, I mean, if you know, you, I can't do anything to Dylan Roof. So physically, (laughs) So this is what I could do. And that people sort of understood it was amazing. And I'm so grateful because I wasn't sure people would. I wasn't sure I understood it. I just knew that I felt like I had to do it. Like all of it's sort of outer body. Like I remember talking to Daniel at one point when we were done editing and I said, whoa, I just read this again and I'm really, really shaken up. And he said, yeah. And I I remember thinking, we've spent six months doing this. I remember there are certain sections that I would like, not that they would come to me in my dreams, but I would write about them at night and then wake up in the morning and write them down. I remember writing the section about the actual shooting, like early one morning. And it would just, it was like, I, I look at that and I'm like, I can't even believe I wrote that. Like, it's not like, cause it's so excellent because it's so painful. Like, it's like what the it's last thing in my life I'd want to think about. It also comes out of such a profound respect for older black people that I have you know, my grandfather was my favorite person. So looking at them was like looking at someone killing my grandparents. And and that just can't be. Seeing those grandchildren and and these were people who had done everything right, right? Like they had gone to church. You know, they had paid their dues to be Americans. And that's how they, they left this earth. And that felt really wrong. It still feels really, really wrong. How do you feel now? Uh, I was telling my friend who I used to work for, Dream Hampton, she was like, she said, it's it, this is a triumph. And I said, this is a miserable triumph. Like, it's not like something, it's not about me. It's not like it feels anything. It's like, okay, so you wrote something that you're trying to make sense of how you saw something that really 
altered you and shapes the way you see this country, shapes the way you see what Black people go through every day in this country. And so how do I feel is like, it's a difficult question because I feel like nothing is going to bring those nine people back and nothing is going to alleviate their family's grief. Trump is still our president and, you know, brown kids everywhere are being deported and and things feel like a state of an emergency. You know, I love the profiles I, I wrote before. I love them, but I feel like it would be irresponsible having learned how to write, you know, and studied how to do this work and not turn your attention to the stories that I think really need telling right now. And so I feel prepared to fight. <laughs> That's how I feel. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I feel prepared and committed to do some heavy lifting over the next few years, which is not to say that I'm like, oh, the work I did before wasn't that. It's just, this is different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Rachel, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Courtney Harrell edited this episode. Our sponsors this week, MailChimp. If you're looking for a book, go to readthissummer.com. Shea Serrano has picked out a uh, fabulous list of authors to bring to the Decatur Book Festival this Labor Day. All kinds of good books on there for you to choose from. And Netflix, check out the new podcast. It's called You Can't Make This Up. It's the behind-the-scenes story of uh, all of their documentaries, Wild Wild Country, Evil Genius, all kinds of stuff that I'm sure if you are listening to this podcast, you are interested in. So go check that out. It's called You Can't Make This Up. Thanks to them for making the show happen this week. And uh, thanks most of all, of course, to Rachel Kadziganza. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.